Uh, I'm joined in the studio now by Tony Earls. Tony uh, is a semi-at-least-retired semi Sydney lawyer um, whose background is Irish and who has done a lot of research into Irish-Australian lawyers practising, um, particularly here in New South Wales. And uh, he is the author of Plunkett's Legacy, an Irishman's Contribution to the Rule of Law in New South Wales. And we will find out who Plunkett is was um, in the course of this conversation. So, good morning, Tony. Good morning, Pamela. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Now, um, tell us a little bit about your interest in Irish-Australian lawyers. Um, Well, uh, I think, as you said in the intro there, uh, it comes largely from my background. Um, And, you know, in in my uh, time in Australia, um, it's, it's been very... Uh, comforting and interesting to to find just how much of a, a contribution um, um, Irish lawyers have made to uh, Australian uh, legal and political life, and in fact, social life more more generally. Um, as you say, I chose to pick out one individual in particular, uh, John Hubert Plunkett. So, tell us about Plunkett. Well, uh, uh, Plunkett came out to Australia in 1931. Uh, he was appointed Solicitor General. Um, he was made Attorney General in 36, and then served continuously 20 years through to 1856 when representative government came in. So uh, he's New South Wales's longest-serving Attorney General, um, But what is remarkable about Plunkett is the extent to which he was a social reformer Um, um, in relation to things that I think made quite a difference to Australian society. So, uh, um, uh, legislatively and um, 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 as Attorney-General, he worked very hard in a very real way to ensure equality between the religions so far as the state was concerned. Um, he was very proactive in ensuring the freedom of the press so far as he could, rights to Indigenous people. Uh, he was a key founder in the state education system um, and laid a lot of the building blocks in place to ensure that representative government could come in in 1856. That's really interesting. Now, he also was involved in a few pieces of legislation that also made a difference to us, things like the Church Act and perhaps some things to do with education? Uh, Well, uh, Governor Burke largely gets credited with the Church Act and and I've got no doubt that uh, he was on side. It may indeed have been his idea. Um, whether there was ever an established church in Australia, as there is in England, um, is an interesting debating point. <coughs> um, certainly, officially, there was only uh, an Anglican church from 1788 to 1803. 1803, the uh, state allows official Presbyterian and Catholic Masses to be held. Um, If we then move it along to 1836, the government thought it was good for the morals of the colony (laughs) to uh, 
encourage uh, churches throughout New South Wales. Uh, now, we had an interesting mix in New South Wales at that time. Um, um, I've only roughly got remember the percentages, but you know it probably broke down something like forty uh, percent Anglican, thirty percent Catholic, thirty percent Presbyterian. Um, um, give me a bit of leeway on those, but look, there was a good mix, and uh, uh, um, what Burke and Plunkett put together was that the state would fund the construction of churches by matching what the local community put together dollar for dollar. Uh, the important thing, and as far as I know, this wasn't happening anywhere else in the British Commonwealth, um, it didn't matter whether it was an Anglican church, a Presbyterian church or a Catholic church, the, the um, uh, state would fund you dollar for dollar. Now, Plunkett was the guy who actually put all that together. Uh, and between 1836 and, I think, 1860, um, if you go around country New South Wales or anywhere in New South Wales and you find churches of that date, they were put together by... Uh, a, you know, funded. They were state-funded churches, at least 50%. Now... That's a great thing in itself. But from that point onwards, it's also symbolic. You haven't got the state stepping in and preferencing one religion over another. Um, if we fast forward to 1901, that finds itself as an Australian value uh, within, I think it's section 107 of the Constitution, uh, where it explicitly says that the state won't do that. That's fantastic. Now we're going to have a little break for some music and then we're going to talk about um, some activity Plunkett was involved in a little bit closer to Glen Innes. Celtic Heart with Down by the Sally Gardens, um, a beautiful Irish song. does have words, but uh, as a tune it's very nice also. Uh, still talking with Tony Earls here in the studio about Irish lawyers in New South Wales and we've talk been talking about John Hubert Plunkett, um, the first Solicitor General of New South Wales um, and one of the very interesting things that Plunkett was involved in, of course, was prosecuting the Mile Creek Massacre, so a local connection for us up here. Um, Tony, tell us a little bit about what Plunkett did about Mile Creek. Uh, well, one of the things about um, uh, this part of New South Wales that we're in now, if we can talk about it as a broad territory, is, of course, in the early days it was squatter country, uh, for cattlemen, it was very much frontier country, um, and you know uh, the stockmen and settlers, squatters in this area, came to see the indigenous people largely as pests, um, and so there there were a number of what we would now look back on as atrocities committed against the indigenous people at that time. Um, um, much of this has been uh, documented in a, a very useful work that came out recently by Callum Clayton Dixon uh, called Surviving New England. Um, uh, the incident that Plunkett was involved in uh, was Mile Creek, which is north of Inverell. I'm not quite sure how far... Uh, yes, you're catching my geography <laughs> out now. 
Um, what happened at Mile Creek is uh, um, a dozen stockmen um, uh, butchered and then destroyed the corpses of um, um, some a group of women and children uh, while the men were away. Um, unfortunately, such incidents were not un unremarkable in themselves. But what makes Mile Creek uh, memorable is it's the only time that people were prosecuted for that offence or successfully prosecuted for that defence. And as the Attorney-General at the time, Plunkett was the man responsible for that. Um, um, uh, the trial was held in, in Sydney um, and he had to go to quite extraordinary lengths. He had... Uh, railed against him uh, the great resources of the Australian Cattlemen's Association who hired the, the top four lawyers of the Sydney Bar outside of Plunkett himself. Um, um, and there was obviously a fair amount of public support. It wasn't universal, but there was a fair amount of public support. Uh, in the end, Plunkett had to go through two trials to get the conviction, and seven men were hung. Um, now, that stands alone in Australian history as to, uh, 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 you know, a prosecution for the massacres that happened. Uh, Plunkett ultimately saw that prosecution as a failure uh, because, yes, it sent out the message that people will be prosecuted for these kind of offences, but what he thought it did was it actually drove it underground. Um, and so uh, people were a lot less open about them. Um, um, you know, one notorious case that he drew attention to was um, um, Aboriginal people effectively being poisoned through the distribution of flour. Uh, he basically spent the rest of his legislative career um, attempting to uh, change legislation so that Indigenous people could give evidence in a court of law. One of the fatal impediments they had in colonial times is they were not allowed to give evidence in court because it was felt that they couldn't swear an oath properly. And why is that? Um, well... As, we will, as Christians would understand it, the oath is based on the fact that you would have an understanding of the afterlife uh, where you will be re rewarded or punished. Um, and it appears that Indigenous people, or at least the Indigenous people they were dealing with in New South Wales, didn't have this conception of an afterlife. And so therefore they they had no reason to tell the truth in court. That was the thinking at the time. And in fact, in New South Wales, they are not allowed to give evidence in court, or there may be some of them that were able to swear an oath, but um, 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 that impediment actually isn't uh, uh, overcome until the New South Wales Parliament passes special, special legislation in the 1860s. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? Part of fascinating part of our troubled interaction with the Indigenous people of this country. Um, so when we think about Plunkett, I mean, 
I think Mile Creek looms large in, in a lot of people's memories and um, one of the things about Mile Creek is it's an example of uh, standing up for uh, people who were otherwise very, very poorly treated uh, and it seems likely that Plunkett had some background that might have inclined him to feel this way. Uh, yeah, look, in the book that I wrote um, and, and the reason that I thought there was a book in him um, is uh, you had a quite clear example of someone who brought uh, progressive values uh, uh, to New South Wales in the work that he did. Uh, Professor John Maloney called him the architect of freedom. Uh, most recently, the former Crown Prosecutor for New South Wales, Mark Tedeschi, has uh, written a book on particularly Plunkett's work in Mile Creek and... and uh, likens Plunkett to Martin Luther King. Um, <laughs> um, whether that's right or not, the question is, why was he so extraordinarily driven? And he was. He was an incredibly industrious man. Um, and I, the thesis of my book is, it's because he was himself disenfranchised in his youth uh, and, in fact, his early years in the profession because he was a Catholic in uh, early 19th century Ireland where Catholics were disenfranchised uh, and he uh, was a key player in O'Connell's campaign uh, that eventually led to what's called the Catholic Emancipation Act um, um, in 1829 which um, allows Catholics to... Uh, not only be members of parliament, but to be appointed to high offices of government. Uh, now, the important thing for a lawyer in all of that is O'Connell's campaign, unlike many other Irish campaigns or Scottish campaigns even, was a non-violent campaign. Um, they believed that they could get those reforms through legal and constitutional action. Um, and... Uh, that's the way Plunkett worked in New South Wales. He actually believed in the power of the law to do good. And that must be a very lovely thought for a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. It doesn't always pan out that way. <laughs> no, no, indeed. Um, nonetheless. Um, so Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, kind of a figure that looms large in Irish history, he was actually a sponsor of Plunkett's in, in getting him the position here, wasn't he? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, having uh, achieved the right for Catholics to take up uh, high government positions, uh, O'Connell was actually keen to not only have the right, but to see it being done. Uh, and he put on a fair, fair amount of pressure on the British government. And I think Plunkett uh, was one of the first, if not the very first, uh, beneficiary of the Catholic Emancipation Act... Uh, whether they thought it was funny to send him to New South Wales or not, I don't know. Uh, but in 1830, so you know, within a year of the Catholic Emancipation Act, he's appointed Solicitor General to New South Wales, and that's where his Australian story starts. 1830. But he didn't arrive here in 1830, did he? No, that's right. 1831. It used to take a while in those days. <laughs> it did indeed. <laughs> uh, it's time for the news. So we'll go to the news and then we might uh, continue chatting about Plunkett and perhaps some other people as well. That was Dear Harp of My Country from Thomas Moore's Irish Melodies. And uh, we're in the studio at the moment with Tony Earls and uh, a Sydney 
former Sydney lawyer who has uh, a bit of a research interest in Irish-Australian lawyers. We've been talking about John Hubert Plunkett, the first Solicitor-General of New South Wales, and we've talked about some of his legal work. Uh, But now we're going to talk about another um, aspect of Plunkett's life, one that uh, was very close to his heart, as I understand it, and that is music. So, Tony, tell me about Plunkett and his love of music. It's just lovely that you played that Thomas Moore tune, which Plunkett would have known well. Uh, Moore was the the big Irish music man of... uh, Plunkett's era, indeed the great British music man. Um, he was a contemporary of Byron, and in his time, he was as famous as Byron. Uh, but getting back to Plunkett, Plunkett was an accomplished violinist, um, and music was an important part of his life. His wife, Maria Charlotte, was a parish trained pianist of some accomplishment, uh, and you know, even on their first arrival, uh, of uh, in New South Wales, they were frequent visitors to Government House because Governor Burke just loved having them play for him. Um, and uh, <coughs> yeah, so uh, he, he has this career, um, and it's only when you do a bit of scratching you find out that music was such an important part of his life. Um, um, he had a lot of trials and tribulations, and I think he fell back on on music a lot. Um, um, after his time as Attorney General, he was still uh, very active as a legislator in the New South Wales Parliament, but he did uh, give a greater licence to his music. He actually did some public performances uh, for fundraising efforts, which were very well received. He gave a number of lectures on music, um, and interestingly, he thought that music was particularly relevant to Australians, or at least the Australia of his time, because he said so many people, I suppose as they disperse through rural New South Wales, live isolated lives. Uh, and he expressed the opinion that you could have no greater uh, company or comfort than to be able to play an instrument yourself. Uh, and entertain yourself. That's a fantastic story. And he um, he did speak quite a bit about music, didn't he? And the wonderful thing about that period, that sort of 1830s, 1840s, right through to the 1860s, these kinds of speeches that public figures give, they're always reported in the newspaper, aren't they? So we yeah. can actually, we know what he said. Yes, no, no, exactly. Um, yeah, no, he, he, and um, he spoke very... Sp- uh, very engagingly, and he was not without a sense of humour. Um, yeah. Um. That's fantastic. So, um, as I understand it, there's a report of uh, Plunkett and his wife, so John Hubert and Mariah Charlotte Plunk- Plunkett, playing together. Um, a particular favourite of theirs, which was the Kreutzer Sonata. Yes. Um, uh, we have um, Manning Clark to, to thank for, for this idea. The, the Kreutzer Sonata is a piece for violin and piano um, and you only need to listen to the Kreutzer Sonata to think, well, if they were able to play that, they were musicians of some standing. Indeed. Uh, so Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, we're going to play that in just a moment after we've uh, heard from our sponsors. 
we just heard the third movement of Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, which was reportedly a favourite for um, John Hubert Plunkett and his wife Mariah Charlotte to play together. Now, uh, Plunkett, of course, one of the very important early lawyers in New South Wales, um, but my studio guest, Tony Earls, has also an interest in other Irish lawyers or lawyers of Irish heritage in New South Wales. Um, and there's one who has a particular connection to Glen Innes, which doesn't seem to be particularly well known. Tony, tell us a little bit about this. Um, Australia's longest serving High Court judge. Uh, he served for 46 years, so that's a record that will never be beaten because you have to retire at 70 now. Uh, Edward McTiernan, he was born here in Glen Innes. Um, now, According to some reports, he was actually born in a place called the Commercial Hotel, which um, I haven't yet been able to track down um, where the Commercial Hotel was in Glen Ennis. Um, 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 his father was the police sergeant here. Um, so uh, he's, he grows up here. Uh, by the time he starts school, he'd actually moved out to a mining community at Metz, uh, a temporary boom town. Um, <clears throat> by the age of eight, uh, his family have relocated to Sydney. Um, so I'm really interested in him because he's a Glen Ennis boy. Uh, um, but by my lights, anyway, there's a real connection with Plunkett. Uh, uh, McTiernan was a Catholic. Um, and it was because of... Uh, People like Plunkett and some of the things that Plunkett did. Um, that what happens is by the 20th century, there's no real impediment left for Catholics. Um, there's no real sign. I mean, you know, there were occasional, occasional mild instances of sectarianism, but it didn't hold McTiernan back. I mean, he was christened just two blocks up the road here at St Patrick's Church. Um, and he goes on to become Attorney-General of New South Wales at a very young age. He goes on to serve in the federal parliament. And then he has this remarkable career as a High Court judge where, uh, you know, he sees six Chief Justices out, from Isaac Isaacs through to uh, Garfield Barwick. Um, um, so he's someone that I think Glenn Ennis should be very proud of, um, or that they should um, at least be aware of and take an interest in. That's fascinating. And uh, there are so many, I think, hidden stories. Uh, we know a lot of our local um, kind of important people, but I guess part of the reason we don't know so much about McTiernan or don't remember him around here is because he left so young. So how old was he when they moved to Metz? Uh, well, um, I'm not sure. I'm imagining about five because uh, uh, he started school at Metz, so he didn't attend school here at Glen Ennis. But, you know, if you subscribe to uh, the view of many people, um, um, your personality and your identity is formed by the time you're seven. Uh, so notwithstanding that his big career is elsewhere, um, it would be interesting to look at his his attitudes, his social attitudes, as someone who perhaps was formed by uh, the communities here locally. Absolutely. And uh, lovely connection that he, he must have been baptised at St Patrick's Church, as you say, two blocks from where we're sitting now. Um, and so when 
the his father being a police sergeant, I assume that he was just transferred to Metz, and that's uh, that's why the family moved. Indeed, uh, and his his um, uh, his father was from Donegal, uh, as was his mother. How lovely! What a beautiful part of Ireland as well. And so, the what year was it that we're talking about the Ming, or what roughly that we they were moved to? Um, uh, well. <coughs> Uh, McTiernan is born in 1892. Okay. So in the 1890s, I'm just wondering about how, what this relative size and importance of a town like Gleninus and, and a settlement like Metz would have been. Metz must have been quite big at that stage. That would have been its heyday. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm researching it, obviously, uh, but I suspect that uh, most of your listeners would have a better idea on those questions than I do. Um, I was just speaking with someone locally over dinner the other night uh, and they had to remind me that um, uh, Glen Innes was far from the splendid town it was now back in McTiernan's time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I wonder, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have thoughts about this, what Glen Innes was like in the 1890s. So St Patrick's Church was already... Well and truly established by the 1890s. Yeah, uh, St Patrick's Church, I think, is constructed in 1872 or finished in 1872. Mm. Funnily enough, it just misses out on the Church Act. <laughs> That's quite the irony, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, Glen Innes, I think, from memory, started to to really expand around this, probably around the same time as Metz was booming. Um, as I understand mm. it, a lot of... Um, the development of Glen Innes took place around mining, but there would be a lot of people in town who'd know a lot more about that than me. Um, yeah. I mean, look, Metz is a lovely place to visit, uh, and uh, somebody's done some good work out there in terms of the the history of the place. Um, um, there's not much of it left, but they have markers of the old town and you can see it was a it was a fair old town but it it lasts the length of a relatively short mining boom uh you know it springs up and then it's gone away within a decade fantastic what a fascinating little piece of history i guess so much of the surroundings of Glen Innes is is like that that with the mining and so forth that comes and goes um, and we, you know, I think possibly our history as a as a pastoral area is much better known, but um, certainly some wonderful stories to be told. So, McTiernan, he becomes uh, he comes from Glen Innes, moves to Metz as a still as a child at the age of eight. The, the family has moved to Sydney. Is yes. this another police appointment for his father that takes them to Sydney? Uh, yeah, whether it's actually a transfer, he, he continues his work in the police force in Sydney. Fantastic. And McTiernan himself, so he's come from quite a, I think police sergeant could would be best described as quite a working class background. Oh, for sure. How does um, he come to enter the law? Um, well, he was obviously <coughs> a talented kid. Um, 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 one of the stories associated with him is that while in Metz, he fell off the veranda and broke his arm in such a way as it was decided he'd never be able really to earn his living as a miner or, you know, any kind of physical work. Um, when he does start work in Sydney, he starts as a clerk um, and he's the old uh, working-class success story, you know. He goes to night school, ends up going to Sydney University, 
um, ends up going to the Sydney Bar, ends up becoming a prominent member of the Labor Party um, uh, in New South Wales, um, and uh, his career comes on leaps and bounds. That's amazing, isn't it? And you say that he will um, he will always be our longest serving High Court judge. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's quite a funny story, actually. Um, um, I think Gough Whitlam he he'd led Gough Whitlam to uh, he was quite old he was in his eighties uh, that when Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister. Um, um, he had a deal with Goff that he would retire to allow Goff, Goff to get a perhaps a more favourable uh, Labour-type High Court judge in. Uh, he never did. He he hung on in there, and I, I don't think he had any intention of retiring. But the poor old bugger at 84, um, he broke his hip chasing a mosquito with a newspaper in his hotel room and was confined to a wheelchair. Now, by that stage, Barwick had decided that... Um, uh, uh, McTiernan was too old to be a High Court judge and he told him he would have to retire because there was no wheelchair access to the new High Court building that was being constructed in um, Canberra. Uh, and then when McTiernan retired, uh, Barwick told the architect, right, you can put that ramp in now. <laughs> so uh, McTiernan literally was 97, so he had some go in him. Um, he was 84 when he retired from the High Court, but... Uh, High Court judges now, uh, by Act of Parliament, have to uh, step down when they're 70, uh, what Michael Kirby uh, mockingly refers to as the compulsory age of senility. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, someone would have to be appointed to the High Court in their early 20s in order to beat McTiernan's record, and that's just not going to happen. That's brilliant, isn't it? So there we are, Glenn Innes's... Son, McTiernan will always be Australia's longest-serving High Court judge. What a fantastic story. I'm going to have a bit of music now, and fittingly, this is a tune uh, from the Irish fiddler, Colm McConimra, and uh, the tune is The Court of the New Town, or Cúrst Falanua. Colm McConimra with uh, The Court of the New Town. And speaking of courts, we've been talking with Tony Earls about uh, Edward McTiernan, uh, a Glen Innes boy who will always be Australia's longest high longest-serving High Court judge, uh, and also about John Hubert Plunkett, the, the Attorney-General of New South Wales who prosecuted the perpetrators of the Mile Creek Massacre. Um, so, Tony, thanks for joining us this morning. It's been lovely talking about uh, some interesting Irish-Australian uh, lawyers who have connections to our part of New South Wales. Uh, yes, thank you so much, Pamela. It, it's been a delight. Um, I love your show. Um, without wanting to be too much of a sycophant. Um, um, I think Plunkett would have approved of your show. I think a lot of the settlers would have approved of your show. Um, uh, This uh, concept of music from the Celtic homelands, we need to remember just how important music was to those early settlers. These were people who entertained themselves. And for a lot of them, this was also a place of of homesickness but they could go home and they could go home through the kind of music that you play um so uh, uh, thank you very much 
thank you. That's lovely. And um, that's very kind of you to say so. And uh, Tony will be giving the talk on Thursday at the Croft about John Hubert Plunkett. So um, if you're interested in the story of Plunkett, uh, please pop on up three o'clock on Thursday um, for some more details about Plunkett's uh, Irish background and his contribution to so much um, of Australian society, law, education, the church and so on.